Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is January 4th, 2013, and my guest is Kevin Kelly. His latest book and a subject of an earlier Econ Talk episode is What Technology Wants. Kevin, welcome back to Econ Talk. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Our topic for today is a pair of recent essays you've written on productivity, technology, and the future. And as always, we'll put links up to those essays and other topics we discuss at the page for this episode at econtalk.org. The first essay is called The Post-Productive Economy, and you're reacting to an essay by Robert Gordon uh, that's titled, Is U.S. Economic Growth Over? Um, His answer is basically yes. He argues that the third industrial revolution hasn't had much effect on productivity or at least its effects are over. The first revolution was steam and railroads. The second, electricity, indoor plumbing, and so on. They had huge effects on our standard of living. The third, computers, the web, cell phones, seems to be over, at least according to Gordon. He says it had a, its heyday was the 1996 to 2004 period, and we should essentially settle in for stagnation. It's a very interesting paper. He makes the point that growth is not the norm for humanity, until about 1750, we were pretty stagnant. Uh, that stagnation seems to be the norm. He argues that many technological improvements have a one-time effect. Just to take one example, we can now travel 600 miles per hour in a steel tube called an airplane. Yes, it's faster than a horse, but that number isn't going to be increased much in the future, at least for a while. But you disagree with Gordon. You are more optimistic about the future. Why? For two reasons, I think he, uh, Gordon, underestimates um, the degree to which change has already happened. Secondly, um, by his own calculations, he says that it takes almost 100 years for these revolutions to play out their full effects, and um, we're nowhere near 100 years into this third revolution, which um, uh, he describes as being about computers and the internet. And um, thirdly, um, I think he is missing in his calculations the the true nature of this third revolution, which is um, far more about the communication aspect of it than it is about the computation aspect of it. And we are just at the beginning of that. And then fourthly, I think his metric for um, measuring the, the, the economic power um, is incorrect as applied to this new um, third revolution. Because I think one of the things that is changing is actually um, how we measure our growth. And um, so, so I think that the the, the nature of, of the change and the nature of how we um, dictate our success is is changing, and he misses that as well. 
Well, let's start with the age of uh, effect. He, as you point out, starts his revolution of computers and technology of the recent sort in around 1960, which I suppose is when the first computers started to come into the world. And your point is that that's just, that's the wrong date. Why? Well, um, Gordon does not actually give a very good reason or criteria for how he's deciding when these when these um, three revolutions start or begin or even end, they seem to me to be kind of gut, um, intuitive, uh, non-quantitatively determined. Well, and they have so, to be. And so um, uh, he 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 marks the third one as the beginning of of commercial computation, and. My argument is that um, that's probably not a very good uh, place to begin for revolution because I don't think really uh, I agree with him that not much happened with computation alone. I think the both the economic and particularly the cultural changes in the electronic gear began with the networking of these devices from uh, computers, mainframe computers, and then personal computers, and then mobile devices. And that um, all the kind of transformative effects that we've been seeing and feeling are really all due to um, what happens when you network them. And that in a certain sense, it's the networking age rather than the computer age that we really should be trying to, to look at. And if that's so, then the real networking of things did not really begin in earnest until the 90s. Correct. Um, there was some e- even internetting, but the, 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 I know from, from having resided on the, the, the internets very early in the eighties, it was pretty lonely. There was not much happening, but even so it, it was the nineties really when the web began that, that this stuff began to be felt. But even if you calculate it from the eighties, that's still 20 years later than when he was, um, trying to calculate it in the sixties in the beginning of the commercialization of computers. Yeah, it's so been I, a, I, it's, yeah I, I, go ahead. It's been a classic measurement question and productivity numbers as to why I don't have the literature at my fingertips, but a lot of people raise the question of as and this is in the eighties and nineties, well before the networking part, why computing hadn't had a large measurable effect on the productivity numbers, why we didn't see a spike or a, a large right. at least some kind of large jump. There are a lot of different argues, arguments about that. I'm not on top of that literature, but um, you're arguing that that maybe isn't so surprising that, that the real, and, and I think, by the way, I should add that part of the reason that was raised is that a lot of corporations were spending a lot of money. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah. adding computing to their capital. Right, right. And so people and, said, well, if they're spending all this money, there must be some bang for the buck. Where is it? Right. And of course, as you point out, some of that took a while. Uh, it took right. a while for people to figure out how to use computers effectively in manufacturing and other personnel management and other issues, other areas. But exactly. There, there was, in fact, it was Robert Solo who made the quip that we've, we see the effects of computers everywhere except in productivity. In the data. Yeah. And there was a fellow, actually, um, a guy named Strassman, I forget his first name, who wrote a book called Squandering Computers. Or I, I, I don't know if that was the name of the book, but it was about squandering computers. And he was, he was from uh, Xerox, and he was for... Um, uh, Preaching, and I would say this was like um, late uh, 80s, 
the fact that, that there was no economic case for all these companies um, spending huge amounts of money for computers, which were very expensive at the time. And um, it was hard to argue with his numbers because, um, uh, in fact, you know, there was large outlays for computers, and they didn't seem to really benefit the, the total economic uh, case. And, in fact, I even remember doing an interview with um, Peter Drucker, who made the case in the early 90s that from his perspective, there had been no money made yeah. in the computer industry. He, he meant in terms of it as being um, a net gain to the economy. Um, and, and, he's, and he made the point, too, that that, um, that was also true. I mean, it, it would take a long time until the, that there was a net gain in terms of the total amount of money spent and the total amount of difference made. So I think so I think that the facts are are pretty clear that there wasn't much of a gain in, in in those years and I see it as more as kind of laying a foundation um of change and and change not just in terms of having the hardware and the iron in uh turned on but a change in um the way a company is structured just just sort of Preparing the, the the way in which software would play a new role and communication would play a new role in the structure of an organization, and so there was a sort of it was the kind of an, and type of an investment, if you might want to think about it, oh, for sure, in, in organizational change necessary, um, and that would and it took you know a generation of um, economic or corporate lifespan to um, to prepare for that. Well, just to take a personal example on this point about productivity, I, I've told this story before, but it, forgive me, listeners, for retelling it. I, I bought my first personal computer in 1984, which was a Mac, and at the time it could only create a 12-page, if my memory is right, a 12-page document. Uh, if you wanted to make a 20-page document, you had to divide it into two 10-page documents. Of course, it crashed. A little bomb would show up on the screen. You had to learn how to use it. And my dad was a very happy user of a yellow pad and a pencil. And I'm sure he thought I was wasting my time learning to use this technology that really, I could, you had to kind of talk yourself into the fact that it was a time saver because you had to say, well, if I want to do a second draft, it's easier. But it had all these huge costs. And yeah. um, my dad, thank God, is still alive at 83 and he's still using a yellow pad. He, he does have somebody enter his his essays and, and articles into a in letters into a um or into a computer uh so he's never got used to using a keyboard even and i know many people over the age of 75 who are in that world they still use a pencil they still use a yellow pad and nothing wrong with it it's a very very effective technology but uh and you could still argue by the way of course that there are many time wasting aspects to using computers but uh the productivity increases just for research alone, have been so extraordinary. And, and just, you know, obviously you can save time from traveling to the library, traveling out of your country to find data and articles and resources and references. Sure. So yeah. that, that was a good investment by, by me, I think. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, there's, and there's lots of examples that we can think of in real life and past life where um, you are required to invest into learning, and during the learning curve, you're not as efficient not, or graceful right or accomplished, but um, at the other end of it, when you it's like learning how to, to, say, type or something. When you begin to learn how to type, you're going to be much slower than writing it out. But but 
um, you can type faster than you can write uh, once you get um, good at it. So, but I do, I do have to concede to my dad that the real reason I bought that computer because I thought it was cool. It really wasn't that I thought that in 2012 I'd right. be on the internet. So right, <laughs> and, and, and but I like to get, come back to that because I think that's actually a very very important point. Um, we can we can use different words for cool, but um, I, I think that. Um, we often, I mean, I think a lot of our economy now is about cool things, not just things that make you or are able to help you do things faster. Well, let's turn to that because that was one of your other criticisms of Gordon. Uh, I've, for, I've forgotten uh, two and three, but one and four, the, the last one being he doesn't measure what necessarily what we should be measuring. And one of those things, cool is the wrong word, I think, exhilarating, um, um, inspiring. Talk about why you think uh, productivity per se is the wrong measure to evaluate the uh, this revolution. Because um, <clears throat> if w- w- when I look at the uh, the long course of human endeavor and civilization, um, uh, Gordon is correct that for a very long period of time, um, the growth in say living standards or progress, however we wanted to describe that, was actually very minimal for very long periods of time. And um, Life was nasty, brutish, and short. Yeah, and, and, and there was, you know, I mean, for, for most of human history, for the bulk of it, um, people were starving. We were always hungry. I mean, this is, this is the recurring theme um, throughout. Is, is that, uh, Malthus was correct. There, there was um, the population would always kind of expand just to the point where there was, it was re- really people were on the edge constantly. And um, it wasn't until um, our greatest invention, the invention of science, the Enlightenment and a whole bunch of other, a network of other kind of ideas, where um, we were able to actually solve that problem of food and in that surplus start to create New things, and we and and we, uh, you know, beginning in you know the 1700s, it's hard to 1600s, where, wherever you wanted to do, start to map that, there was a huge uptick in um, many things, including human population, which suddenly could um, really start to expand, and um, there was expansion of all these other things, and um, this kind of sense of accelerating change in lifespan, um, education, literacy, uh, economic wealth, all these kinds of things. And um, if we look at that from on a century scale, it's really peculiar because um, there, there are things that are kind of coming out of nowhere. I mean, they, 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 there's this generative this generation of things, a, a creation of things that did not exist before, these huge amounts of money that now flow around, where did that money come from? It was, it was basically it was created out of nothing. And so there is new things being created. And I think um, the purpose in some senses of what technology is for is to create new things. And by definition, when we create something new, um, that we don't have very good... Uh, uh, ways to measure those things because they're new. And in a certain sense, um, if we want to just kind of measure the newness of the economy, 
that's also hard because if they're truly new, um, they may be sort of completely beyond anything in our experience and we, and we don't really have a good way to measure newness. So, um, w- w- what I'm suggesting is that, um, being able to make things that we already know what we want with less time and less resources is part of the story, but it's only part of the story. It's not the whole story. We we certainly want, I mean, it's the basis of how we got started to begin with. We were able to grow more food with less time and less resources to make sure everybody had it. And that was the beginning of our prosperity and it's still the foundation of it. And, and new technologies allows us to generate the things that we want using less time and less resources and therefore less money, uh, leaving surplus to do other things. What, what are those other things that we want to do? What, in, in brief, what it is is to invent new things. Yeah. And so that inventing new things is really the, the real engine. And as productivity does continue, it means that the, the making of the new things becomes a larger and larger part of what our civilization and economy is about. And yet, productivity, GDP, is only measuring the kind of the old part, which is how to do things that we know how to do more efficiently. Well, as you say, it, it's we struggle to measure new things. It's the classic issue in, in GDP accounting is or in equally important uh, price indices when we're trying to measure our standard of living in a world where prices are constant is quality change. So when quality improves, we have trouble making right. comparable adjustments. So, for example, a TV today is, until recently, was much cheaper than a TV of 60 years ago, where cheap means how long does the average person have to work, how many hours the average person have to work to earn one. But now, a lot of computers today, a lot of TVs there might be, some of them are more expensive. And that's because what they do is so extraordinarily different than what a 1960s black and white TV did. It's not just, oh, it has more channels that last longer. It, it takes fewer pe- people to make it. it. It accesses things in your house and in the world that you couldn't have imagined, literally couldn't have imagined. Right. I mean, a better example would be a phone. Okay, you have yeah. a phone. Yeah. Well, what's a phone now? It's like not really a phone. It's something it's completely different. So, so, so is, is the phone, um, you know, is, are we even being more productive in our making of the phone? Well, it's a, it's a ridiculous question, actually. Even, yeah. the, so, the, other, so, the other, the other way to think about it that, that your example makes me think about is, is entertainment. I was just rewatching Shakespeare in Love the other night, which is one of my favorite movies. And you think about England and Shakespeare's time, what proportion of the British population was involved in something called giving other people a, a pleasant evening of, of, of entertainment. And the answer, I think, would be a few hundred. Mm-hmm. Um, those would be the actors, the people who worked on this, the stage. Uh, there wasn't a lot of lighting, uh, <laughs> uh, it, but whatever they did, curtain work and, and constructing and other things, there were a handful of people who could be playwrights in, in, that, in that time. And you compare it to how many people today, I mean, just look at the credits of a modern movie and look at how many people work obscure to us and certainly to people before modern times. But unless you're an expert and an insider in the industry, you have no idea what these jobs are. The number of people who are involved in doing what 
was would be described in primitive times as unproductive. You call right. it, I think in your paper, you call it waste, wasteful, but you put it in quotes. Yeah. It's not related to food, housing, and, and, and clothing. Uh, it's just nice. It's just cool. It's just fun. It's just exhilarating. It's just inspiring. It's just beautiful. Right. The proportion of people in modern times doing that is out of, is enormously larger than in the past. And I don't think we're capturing that. And even though they're making a living and they're in GDP, as you point out, you can't, it's hard to make that comparison, uh, when, when these are new things. Right, exactly. And um, uh, I'm a little hesitant to kind of just talk about the fun and beauty, but a, a, a maybe a better, more uh, a, a term that's maybe more in line with economics would be to use the words to explore and to experiment. And you, you, you could kind of recast art if you wanted to in, in terms of exploration and experiment, um, because those words also apply to both uh, research and science. So uh, there's a there's a real typical dilemma in medicine, which is that um, uh, if you were rational, you, you would only ever take the most perfected medicine that has been proven. Um, but but if everybody only ever accepted the, the proven methods, there would be no advance. So at some point, you actually actually give an experimental drug or procedure to somebody where there is no guarantee that this is going to work. Um, there's a very high risk. Um, it's not proven. Um, and so that is inefficient in a certain sense. It's like there, there, there's, you, you, you're for sure going to lower your, your, your statistics on that one. Yep. But probably we, we pay that tax. We pay that penalty. Um, of decreasing um, the perfection and decreasing the optimization in order to have long-term growth. And what I'm suggesting is that that portion, as, as we speed up, as we accelerate, that portion that's, that, that we spend on the, the, the non-optimization um, is, um, is, is growing and it, that, in fact, um, it, it is becoming more important to us because um, optim- you know, optimization is really for machines. It, it really is something that mechanical things like, it's, it's really not something that humans really want. We, we really don't tend towards optimization. And, and, and I'm suggesting that whenever we have an optimization problem or something, we really send it to the machines, the mechanical systems, and leave us with this playfulness, experimental, exploration, art, beauty, all these other things that are non-optimized. Well, let me ask you a, a difficult question, but I think it's it's the right one. And we, you may not be able to answer it, but I'd like to hear what you think of it. Uh, Tyler Cowen, somewhat akin to Robert Gordon, has argued that we've, we're in the great stagnation, as he calls mm-hmm. it. We mm-hmm. picked all the low hanging fruit and um similar to gordon we've, we've dissipated and exhausted all the potential gains from this technology and now all we're doing is improving Flickr or you know getting allowing Flickr to give you a black background instead of just a white background those are the kind of technological improvements that uh that uh that we're up that we're up to now and you know, the, the smartphone is done the internet's there and all these 
these gains have happened. So my question is, again, somewhat unanswerable, what could we possibly imagine is yet to come in this revolution that will take it up another notch or two or three? Even if it can't, let's forget whether it can be measured or not. I think one of the things that's extraordinary to me about the world we live in is that it's certainly true that 100 years ago, people couldn't imagine the things we're doing now. And when you're talking about health, I'm thinking, yeah, imagine describing computer-driven laser surgery to somebody 40, 50 years ago. Uh, it's literally, it's impossible. But what might happen in the next 50 years that we would think would be unimaginable? And that's why it's an unanswerable question. But where, where are we headed that might yeah. give us some of the amazing changes that we've seen? in the past, but yet still to right. come. So, so let, let me ad- address the, the stagnation question, which is um, actually I have more sympathy for it in a certain sense than you might suspect, but, but um, in, in maybe in a slightly different angle. I, I think it's entirely, let me, let me put it this way, I think if you calculate the number of hours, person hours, hours worked, necessary to discover something new that that um, it, that's increasing in other words if you, if you go back in history and read like Faraday and Edison you know these guys were going into the basement and discovering things like every night you know they were the, 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 um, it, these were low a lot of the, the the kind of inventions and stuff done you know a couple hundred years ago were low-hanging fruits they were discovering even things like discovering electrons and and uh you know uh photo uh photovoltaics the, the, these these are all discovery with a fairly low number of hours of investigation if you look at a modern paper the higgs boson or something like that the number of hours uh, that has taken people to to kind of you know divine that mystery of the universe it's 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 enormous and um i think as we go forward that um, we have, in a certain sense, reaped a lot of low-hanging fruit in terms of discovery, and that it, it may be that the number of hours that it will take to, to say, like, to uh, to understand gravity or to discover the graviton or whatever, or anti-gravity, is going to be enormous. And so, um, uh, so, 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 so th- there there may be a sense in which what we're seeing is is the fact that. The low-hanging discoveries have been discovered, and and that it, it takes, well, like the credits on a movie film, it just takes an enormous number of hours and energy to to discover the next thing. An army, right? And 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 I think there's no coincidence if you look at the average number of authors in a science paper is, is kind of continue to go up and up and up, and that's in part also because we now have the tools to allow. That kind of cooperation, so they're working hand in hand. But um, so, 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 so I'm th- sympathetic to the idea that that there are low hanging fruits. However, um, I, I, you know, I haven't read uh, Tyler's books, uh, so I don't know exactly what his arguments are. But responding again to to Gordon's paper and his arguments about the stagnation, I think that. Um, to, and again, come back to two reasons. One is, yes, we may have a, we may have a temporary moment of, of stagnation as this sort of next thing kicks into gear. And what is that next thing? 
what 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 could possibly be greater than all the things that we have already invented? I th- I think uh, for myself, I think the answer is is that we are making something at a global level that has not existed on this planet before that is um, categorically different, that's immense in power. And, and that is this, you know, this kind of, uh, if you think of all the things in the world that are on the network, all the devices that are connected to each other, all the people in the world that are now part of a, of a kind of a global culture and a global economy. And if we continue going in that direction, we are making a, you know, a planetary something that, um, will have effects at the planetary scale. And, um, you know, global warming is sort of one bit of evidence that already our technology is planetary. Um, but it's the only one of many, uh, industries that will reveal themselves that we're making this sort of planetary thing. And, um, with, with kind of all the global economies interlocking with, um, uh, you know, the, the, information and um, processing all being kind of distributed in this cloud where we have kind of the global citizens watching the same movies, listening to the same music, studying the same things in school, using the same devices. I, I, I think this is where we need to look for this amazing thing that's going to um, start to emerge. But I'm not as... I, I don't know about that. I, I, that's a hard sell, and of course it's inherently speculative. I, I guess what I would think about is that we think of all the things that we enjoy day to day, and, and our, we just did a recent episode with uh, with Esther Dyson on this issue of attention and and what we pay attention to. So many things that we pay attention to are not monetary. Again, a, a measure I think of our incredible wealth. Um, but as we as that happens, and as the tools for sharing change. I think the potential to to create extraordinary things just it changes in a non discrete way in a in a in a quantum way just to take a, a trivial example from my own life I made this rap video about Keynes and Hayek with filmmaker John Popola and it's been seen over 6 million the two that we made have been seen over 6 million times on YouTube and I think about what it would have been to do that 20 years ago. 20 years ago, 25 years ago, 15 years ago, we'd have made a video, we'd have put it on a DVD, and then we'd have tried to sell it in the back of magazines, you know, distribute it to schools. It just would have been, the, the scale of things has changed so dramatically. And the ability of talented people, of which there are an almost infinite number, to bring their creativity to bear using technology to, to make videos, to make music, to the things that move our souls. Um, there's never been a more creative time in human history. Um, right. What's interesting is that that does not even get accounted in, in the GDP because you're probably giving it away for free. Oh, absolutely. And right. So, so, so that, that, that whole thing, the six million views, your, your, your creation of it, is is not even registered. And just to give it a little bit of pretension, and I don't want to go too far, but it wasn't just seven 
those two videos don't just add up, I hope, to 17 and a half minutes of entertainment. They encourage people to learn about Keynes and Hayek and change the, what happened in some classrooms because kids watched it and talked to their teachers and fellow students about it. And I think that those changes, besides just, uh, again, I don't want to downplay delight. I love delight. I think delight's glorious. Uh, and, tra- and can be transcendent when it's the right kind. But I think the ability to, to get people to think and, and share ideas with others is just glorious. I'm not saying it's, we're going to cure cancer because of that, although I think we will. But, um, it, there's just a lot more stuff going on there that we can't imagine. Right. And, and that was another point of my piece, uh, in my argument against Gordon is that I think, um, oftentimes those ideas that um, are generated through the use of this technology will seep into the society at large and will eventually have impact on the productivity of things um, in a very indirect way um, as they become established. In other words, okay, you did a rap video about um, um, Keynes and, and Hayek. Well, that sooner or later will 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 flow down if it's seen that the you know millions and millions and have some impact in terms of people's approach to uh, setting up policy in terms of funding and and it'll eventually um, it will eventually have some impact on um, productivity well that's a lovely thought but I, I don't know if that's true I, it, even a small effect but I think I think your other point's the more important point, which is I don't care if it has an impact on productivity, right? It's right. measured productivity anyway. I think the, I, I think as economists, we're not just accountants. Part of our job is accounting, but a lot of what you're talking about is non intangible, non measurable. And as you say, I think the key point is not just you get more from less, you get different and different right. is the great, uh, thing we get because we can afford to get it. We don't just want right. better food. We don't just want cheaper food. We like it. We're going to get that. It's going to, it's already close to free. Uh, you know, poverty in the United States and in, and in much of the world, unfortunately not all of it, but in much of the world, the cost of food isn't the problem. Uh, the problem is other things. And so uh, that those revolutions have, they, they have played out. It's different. That's going to make the world different, not just better or cheaper or more from less. Right, exactly. And so, um, uh, measuring difference is extremely difficult, particularly if a difference is new. And so, um, I, you know, I'm not an economist, but what I would urge a young economist who was interested in kind of revolutionizing our understanding of economics was to, to focus on how do you, how do you measure things that are, haven't been measured before? And how do you, um, measure possibilities? How do you, um, uh, how do you incorporate in that kind of uh, infinite game of um, constantly heading into new territories as the measure um, of uh, what, what you're aiming for as, as a goal? And, and that, that would be that would be fabulous. Yeah, I, I encourage that as well. Um, and I encourage equally economists, young economists out there listening to remember that not everything valuable can be quantified, and if you can't ever measure it, doesn't mean it's not important. But I want to shift gears here. Um, I want to talk move to your second essay, which is related to the first. Uh, you wrote an essay for Wired called Better Than Human, and you note that that's not your title. One of the strange things about the world of writing for 
print or the web, often you don't get to choose your own title. Everything else you get to write, but they write the title so for some reason. And evidently, you didn't like, you wouldn't have chosen the phrase better than human to describe the future world of um, robots that are coming. But um, you start off in that essay by making an analogy to farming, which analogy I've also used. I think it's a phenomenal analogy. You start off by saying, imagine a world where 70% of us lose their, jo- lose their jobs. And why is that relevant for farming? Well, What's the connection? Um, in the agricultural, first agricultural revolution uh, in, in America, um, there was, at the peak, there was 70% of Americans were f- living on farms. And now there's less than a percent. So, 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 um, all those farmers over, over a, a long period of time have lost the, their jobs. And if, um, you were t- to talk to those farmers back then and try to console them, they would find it very hard to believe, <laughs> um, that there was anything for them to do. They just, oh, they also, they also think they'd, be, they, they'd presume there'd be mass starvation if only right, 1%. Exactly, right. <laughs> right. How, how, how does, how does this work? This, this is, you're telling me a fantasy. This is this is a complete. Uh, they, they would be rolling your eyes and saying you're you're making this up. And you were saying no 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 no. There's there's less than a percent of you on the farms, and we're and we have more food than we can. We're too fat. Yep. And um, uh, and we're doing all these other things. And they were saying, what are you? You know. Anyway, so so, so there would be great concern among themselves as as to uh, the improbability of of having anything to do any, any work. And I'm saying, well. 70% of everything that we're doing now, all the jobs, people who are uh, accountants and um, mortgage brokers and and pharmacists and on all these folks, that those jobs are going to go away in, in, in the next, uh, whatever it is, you know, 50, 90 years. And they're not just and, going to India and China. They're going to go away, period. Right. Exactly right. And, and In fact, I didn't, there was a whole section in, in the uh, stuff I wrote that did not get in, but one of the points was that... Um, Outsourcing was just sort of the first step to ro- robotization, and and so anything that can be kind of you can imagine being outsourced would eventually make it to the, the cheapest coolie labor, basically that we can come up with. Yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, they would uh, the, 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 these jobs would be taken over by machines, which, is, by the way, is exactly what happened to the farmers. I mean, yeah. it's not that we have that farming went to India and China is that the farming went to the robots. We, we may mechanicize it. We, we invented all these machines that are almost uh, robotic and becoming more so every year, including ones that now self drive. They, they just, they, they, they go up and down the, the fields and there's um, nobody driving them. I mean, the robot, the computer is driving them. So um, uh, some of them, in fact, some of the last remaining hand, Parts of that picking strawberries and stuff are also, um, they are now robots that are very close to being able to commercially, um, replace, uh, the pickers. So that, that, that metaphor, that parallel of, um, the unthinkable happening to farmers is going to happen to us. And it's just as unthinkable to people today as it would have been unthinkable to the farmers of a century and a half ago. And so an example from my world would be teaching. So it, it's not obvious that in 50 years or 10 years that there should be, maybe there might be for political reasons, but that there should be teachers. Maybe 
I, I think there probably will be teachers, but well, you- teachers will be fewer in number. And again, uh, farmers have not disappeared. I mean, the numbers have. There are there are people who call themselves farmers. There will be people who are, call themselves teachers, but there may not be as many of them. And they will be doing very different things than a teacher yes. today does, perhaps because right. of the opportunity to learn online and share knowledge from the best teachers. Maybe sure. going back to my earlier point, it's possibly to impossible to imagine that. A handful of the best teachers will do all the teaching, just like, as Nassim Taleb pointed out in, in one of his books, a handful of singers sell all the albums. Um, in the old days, you could make a living as a singer uh, because nobody could – that's how you got music. You had to go down to the local hall and hear the best singer in your neighborhood. That's not true anymore. So that, I hope, will happen to teaching. I hope teaching is such that the world's best teachers will teach millions rather than 30. Well, but, but let me just stop there because I think Nassim was a little bit incorrect. Yes, there is this head of uh, on the curve, was head of of a few people selling lots, selling lots of the hits. However, you go on YouTube, how many people are actually singing have an audience? True. It's more than ever. True. And I think this is what what happened with teaching is that yes, the kind of professional teachers become few and they do uh, a lot of the head. But you have a long tail of teaching in which. We see this happening in people, again, doing YouTube tutorials. I mean, I, I'm just astounded about what, what you can learn and see on uh, how to learn something and how easy it is and how, how quickly the next generation is going to the web and places like YouTube to look to be taught. Whether it's uh, something academic, like how to do square or circle or something, or how to finger a piano piece, that's where they're going to learn. And so in a certain sense, the teacher duties are distributed widely to the long tail. Yeah, great point. Totally agree. Um, I'm talking about the urge to hear the, the greatest voice, but you know, can now be delivered via, via YouTube, for example. Um, but anyway, l- let's talk more about robots. Uh, there were a lot of changes in robotics recently. That'll give us a little taste of how that world could change in our lifetime. What's happening? The main thing that's happening is that a number of technological advances in perception, cameras, um, AI, and um, you know stepper motors and things like that have all converged to make a personal robot possible. And a personal robot is is a is a robot basically that that any anybody can program and instruct, and um, the situation right now is that most of the robots in the world are industrial robots. They're extremely expensive, and they require basically a, a PhD to to train and um, program. Um, and so it this is very akin to the mainframe computer of old, which. Um, was big, bulky, and you had to wait in line to give it your instructions in batch mode, and you couldn't couldn't change it while it was running. Um, and you had to be a specialist to make you it, had to be to a talk specialist, to it. talk to Incredible it. Incredible specialist. And uh, if you were someone who used it, you actually had to. Uh, this person was kind of a priest in between you and it. And so, um, uh, what the personal robot is the equivalent of the personal computer, the PC, which is that. Um, it's affordable, generally, to anybody. Um, 
you, you can do it. And also, like the PC, it'll be considered a toy at first. It seems toy-like in terms of its capabilities. It, it's not very precise. It, um, it, it's very limited. And there is a sense to dismiss it, like the early PCs, as, you know, what are you going to do with this? You yeah, like my 12-page Mac. Exactly, right. And so, um, but what happens was like the PCs, yeah, they were kind of toy-like, but they were getting twice as good every year and half as cheap. Uh, and so in a decade, you have this amazing thing, and this is what's going to happen with the personal robot. At first, you'll be the equivalent of, you know, putting your recipes on it like you did in the PC. There'll be um, people who are mostly in small businesses who want someone to pack up boxes or fairly limited kinds of things of assembling parts, doing very, very specified, repetitious things, but they'll be able to do them at a price that's cheaper than hiring a person, and not just a person in the U.S., but even an outsourced person. And so um, we have we have uh, Foxconn, which now makes all the Apple products, but one of the largest employers in China with a million plus employees who are becoming uh, a little restless and unhappy with their jobs. And Foxconn says, we're going to buy 1 million work bots in the next couple of years. And basically to do all the job that even the Chinese migrant workers don't want to do. And um, so, so, so the reason why I mentioned that is that basically this means is that these robots will be cheaper than even Chinese and Asian laborers. Well, just like they are now, there's a lot, there's a lot of, Robotic assembly, mechanized assembly in in China relative to 25 years ago. I remember talking to someone who outsourced sweaters from China, and 25, I think it was 25 or so years ago, a factory in China was a was a bunch of women with knitting needles. That was a sweater right. factory. That's too. That's not what Chinese sweater factories right. look like these days. No, right right now, all the manufacturing is mostly assembly. Uh, that's that's being done and. One of the reasons why that's been slowed to roboticize is that um, uh, it keeps it changes. It's, it's, it's a very it's, it's, it's flexibility, and this is what these personal robots are going to shine in. Is that the way you program them? Is that you either stand in front of them and show them what you want done, or you move their arms, showing them what you want done. It's kind of a show and tell rather than writing programming language, and um, that makes it very fast to change what they're doing, to shift them around, to give them a small job where they work for a few hours and you tell them to do something different. And that's what humans have been... Um, We're good at that. Really, really great <laughs> at. So, so um, Wash the dishes, uh, rake the leaves. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, um, you know, it'll be a long time before I think you have household-type personal robots, but maybe not as long as, as, as we're thinking, just in the same sense that um, how long was it from the first Altair or Commodore or whatever to, to the iPhone, that was, that was only, only a couple of decades. Um, and, and that would not have been even perceived as possible back in, in the seventies and eighties. So th- th- that though is, is, um, I mean, we think of physical things, but, but what I want to emphasize in this revolution is that, um, there are bot, there are robots and there are bots, and bots are kind of software bots, things that are AI-ish, 
Artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence. They're going to be doing many of the jobs that people sitting in front of computers are doing today. And so it's not just the factory workers or even the farm workers that are left that are going to be have their current jobs replaced by this, but even people who are sitting in front of computers. And um, uh, things like Siri, we get to in, in the, the, the voice activation robot thing inside the iPhone or Google's um, spoken um, software. These are just a little bit of hints of how fast uh, this is going to start to accelerate as um, these things, again, get twice as good and half as cheap every year. So I have to fight off the urge to think about Sleeper, Woody Allen's movie. I'm going to put that movie to the side mentally. Uh, and I'm going to ask uh, the, the scary question, which came up in a podcast we did with Robin, I did with Robin Hansen, uh, which is a reference to the singularity, the possibility that artificial intelligence will advance so far that essentially there'll be nothing that we can do better than robots, whatever that means, robots. It'll be more than just things that we think of as robots. There'll be, as you say, there'll be graphic design done by robots that it's not a robot sitting in a computer manipulating the mouse. It'll be something unimaginable. And that therefore, uh, there's nothing going to be nothing left for us to do well, uh, except for the people who know how to design and improve robots. They'll live well, but the rest of us will struggle and we'll be a dime a dozen or a dime a million. And as a result, it's his vision of the future is fairly bleak, even worse than Robert Gordon's, I would say. And he's not alone. There are a number of people who are, quote, worried about machines, artificial intelligence, technology, quote, taking over the world. and. Um, my view, and I'll let you give yours, but I want to get mine down because when I talked to Robin Hanson, he, he pushed the view that we're just chemicals and it's just a matter of time before all the chemicals get figured out. And I just, um, having done some reading since then, I don't think that's a universally held opinion. But I guess the to give his view its due, um, a robot, artificial intelligence, will eventually create a cleverer and more beautiful version of the Keynes Hayek rap videos that I did with John Pavola. And all these creative things that we think, well, that's going to be our specialty, they'll all be gone. So uh, are you worried about that? No, I'm not. Um, my, my reasons for unword may be a little complicated, but let me see if I can state it briefly. Um, Take your time. The, 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 the basis of my non-worry comes from the fact that I think the idea of universal computation is a myth and by universal computation is is the belief that starting with a mathematical idea called Turing Church hypothesis which says that any computation is equivalent to any other computation the full version of that is any computation is equivalent to any other computation given it given infinite time and space <laughs> okay Slightly and different uh, and 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 the problem is is in the real world all all computation is finite is bound by time and space which which kind of comes to the point that the matrix the substrate the foundation that you do your computation on matters and that means that the kind of intelligence that you'll get when it's based on uh silicon even if you're trying to do an emulation 
of the the kind of competition that happens on wetware. It, that's you and me. That's you and me. Because of the fact that you want this in real time, it's just not going to be the same. And so um, what that means is is that the intelligence is not a single dimension. It's multi-dimension. It's, it's, there are many, many different ways in which you can be smart and not just you, but anything can be smart. Your calculator is smarter than you right now in arithmetic. It doesn't freak you out just because it's, it's a different kind yeah. of intelligence. And so what we're going to do is there's really no, almost no reason to make human-like intelligence because we can do it so easily in nine months with untrained workforce. Yeah. What we want <laughs> is actually different. This comes back to different. We want to think different. We want different kinds of thinking. And the whole point of the AIs that we're going to be making is that they're going to be thinking differently. And that's tremendously valuable because lots of things, lots of puzzles and mysteries and things we're going to figure out may not be solved with only human intelligence. We may need other kinds of, of thinking to get there. And so um, what will happen is we're going to make fill the world with a million different species of intelligence, some of them vastly superior to us in that dimension, but humans will have an unimitable type of intelligence, and um, we, being humans, will really like that kind of stuff, so we'll continue to amuse ourselves with this type of intelligence. Um, And so I'm not worried about our place when there's a million other kinds of of intelligences, because I think that... um, We'll still find our own kind valuable to to ourselves and and reward it, and we'll find the other ways of thinking to be extremely valuable, and we'll continue to make and invent new kinds of intelligences, including those that are super intelligent in that direction. So I suppose the pessimistic view is that, well, it starts with chess. First, early computers couldn't beat a person, and now it's very hard. Right. They they're they're really good at it. Uh, and I suppose there will soon, maybe there already are, I'm not, it's not again, not my specialty, but uh, the best computer will, will easily beat the best human being in chess. And you could say, well, chess is not important. It's not, I don't think, it's nice, but it's not important. But soon, then they'll be better at symphonies and poetry and music and movies, and there'll be nothing left for us. So you don't think that's going to happen? Well, uh, no, I, I think it is happening. I think that we are constantly redefining what humans are here for, what they're good at. So we thought, well, humans play chess. Well, now we say, no, humans don't play chess. Well, they, they play checkers or or they play Jeopardy. Well, no, no, actually, we, uh, that's not what we're really about. So I think we're actually on to a whole century of uh, identity crisis at the species level of like, well, what are we good at? But um, And so I think this is going to be a long-term painful um identity crisis where we kind of keep saying, well, what are we really good at? So, so I'm not saying it's necessarily going to be, um, happy the whole way. Cause I think this is painful. I'm just saying that, it, that, what, that, um, it, we're, we're, the, the robot overlords are not going to take over and kill us all and, and, <laughs> um, uh, turn us into slaves, um, or batteries like in the matrix. I think that, um, what we're going to be doing is, is like anybody else, when you're growing up, you spend an awful lot of your 
teenage years and your 20s and 30s trying to figure out, well, what am I good at? What, what am I really, truly is, is mine and, and my distinctive? And it usually takes your whole life to kind of really come to that. It's, it's not an easy journey, but eventually you'll get there. And I think the same thing is this what's happening to us as a species is we're saying, oh my gosh, we thought that we were a chess playing, Jeopardy playing, you know, a checkers playing species, but it turns out that actually that's really not our movie. We're, 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 we're something else and it's going to take us, uh, maybe a century to kind of come up to a better, um, a better idea of what humans are good for. Well, there's one issue about what our standard of living is going to be in this world. The other, I think, issue is what's going to give our lives meaning. I think a lot of us find our meaning in our work. We find it in our family. We find it in our religion. We find it in our play. We find it in lots of different ways. I think um, there are different dystopias that come out of this vision, and, and if some uto- utopias, but you know, one of the dystopias is we'll be so rich that we'll just sit around and, and surf the web all day, and that may be a very depressing existence. It may be a very fat existence in terms of calories available and, and how much um, we have to work, but I think the other challenge is going to be where we get our meaning from. Well, and actually, I, I, I propose a place for that meaning in my book, What Technology Wants, and I'm suggesting that the meaning will come from understanding that what technology is is an extension of the same self-organizing life force that runs through life and actually began at the Big Bang, at the beginning of the universe, and that what it's moving us towards in all things is towards increasing possibilities and options, and that when we make stuff and invent new things, with technology, we're participating in that long arc that runs through the universe and out and beyond us of increasing options, freedoms, choices, and possibilities, and that that actually can give us some meaning in our lives. My guest today has been Kevin Kelly. Kevin, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. It was great. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.